Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Lisa Uparessa about her book titled Gridiron Capital, How American Football Became a Samoan Game, uh, published by Duke University Press in 2022. This is a really interesting book that looks at the cultural and social dynamics that have made football so central to Samoan communities, to Um, economic prospects for players um, and for the people around them. It's a really interesting book that touches on a lot of different things, brings them all together, and somehow does that without it being 800 pages. Um, So it's impressive on a number of levels. And so, Lisa, I'm really excited to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's really nice to be joining you today to talk more about the book. Appreciate the invitation. You're welcome. Um, Can we start off, please, with you introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, So first I would say talofa, aloha, warm Pacific greetings from cold often right now. I know it's warm elsewhere, but it's the middle of our winter. Um, So happy to be joining you today. My name is Lisa Peressa. I'm a senior lecturer in Pacific Studies at the University of Auckland. And I was raised in Tutuila, America, Samoa. Um, I come to Auckland via California, New York City, and Hawaii. So um, coast to coast and then kept going. Um, I also come from a football family. And so this book is both an intellectual project and something that's deeply significant to me on a personal level. Um, In terms of my background, I was trained in anthropology, but I also have background in sociology and ethnic studies. And as I said, I now teach in Pacific studies. So you see that um, definitely comes through in the work. The seed for the book itself grew out of trying to understand how Samoans negotiate U.S. empire. Um, And so taking a specific focus on Tutuila. um, So a lot of the research literature is on independent Samoa and there's much less on Eastern Samoa or American Samoa. Um, And so, you know, thinking about the kind of legacies of colonialism and US empire and the 20th century, territorial status has transformed many aspects of life. And I wanted to understand that transformation better. And so I began, you know, this began as a doctoral project, my doctoral um, dissertation and uh, researching in the national libraries, um, I had a particular find that really set me on a different path. Um, It set me on the path of tracing sport. And once I started down that path, it became really clear quickly that a more narrow view would be needed. And of course, I had all this background as someone who saw from a certain perspective, the building of football in Samoa. It's something people are happy to talk about, and it's lots of fun. And I'm a fan myself, even though as they say, it's complicated now. Um, so shifting from the dissertation to the book, the view is much wider. And I tried to keep this transnational frame in view. It's much less focused on US empire aspect um, than understanding dis- different facets of how players negotiate athletic industry and what it means for them and for our communities. And so um, that's kind of where 
the book started um, as a project and then wanting to write this book because of all the amazing stories that people shared with me. Um, and I said, um, as I said, sorry, I'm getting a little bit emotional. Um, so as I said, it's something that's really deeply significant. Um, I was actually in the process of um, doing final copy edits for the book manuscript when my dad passed away last year. And um, his story is featured um, in one of the chapters in the book. And so part of this book is about sharing um, knowledge with a wider, you know, academic, intellectual, public communities. But um, part of it is also gifting back some of that knowledge that was shared with me to our communities as well. Thank you for explaining all of that. Um, I think it can be really helpful and really powerful for those of us doing research. It can often be something quite individual and something quite lonely in a lot of ways. And especially um, master students and PhD students, the idea of kind of, well, I have to have everything figured out immediately. Um, I have to know what my research project is and what the outcome is going to be. And hearing about evolution of projects, hearing about all the different things that go into something like this um, and things that are sort of professional, things that are personal, things that are chance encounters of a piece of information or a story, um, I think are much more real. That's really more what it takes to create a book. Um, so it's and I, definitely it's, been a journey. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think that that's really important um, within this community of scholars to be aware of not just kind of the argument of this book is X, but how do we sort of get to those places? How do we end up with these beautiful polished finished products um that you know probably didn't start off as beautiful finished final projects um so thank you for sort of sharing that evolution and journey with us um i'd love to sort of trace some of the main parts of the book um to share um some of the great arguments you're making with our audience um obviously we're not going to be able to unfortunately get into all of the detailed stories that you do are able to include, um, but hopefully we can a taster, I suppose, of the main kind of top bits, I, I guess. Um, but I think to start off with, we kind of need to start with some foundational stuff, which is how did football become such a big thing in American Samoa? Yes, that's, I mean, that's really, I think, one of the central questions that motivates all the chapters of the book. And foundationally, the emergence of the sport is tied to Eastern Samoa or Tutuila and Manua becoming and remaining part of US empire, right? This establishes military, territorial, and even church-based links. Um, but that's a bit of a background framing, right? That's you know what sets the conditions of possibility, but it doesn't tell us why the story unfolded in the way that it did. And the real story is people. So who found themselves, people who found opportunity, purpose, joy, meaning in the game, and wanted to provide that for others. And so whether it's, you know, education administrator or former players like Al Lolotai, who in the, in the late 70s, returns to Samoa to head the first park and rec, Parks and Recreation Agency, under which much of the initial sport infrastructure is built, you know, whether it's people like him or others like Ed Emo, who is a former Chargers player. He returns and he works with people like my father, who was a coach in the 80s and eventually directed the high school sports program into the 90s. Um, you have, you know, people kind of coming and sharing uh, this, this thing, this project. So like the very first teams 
you know, connected to uh, the early high schools in Tutuila. And, you know, one of, I remember one of the uh, former players who had gotten in touch with me on Facebook and um, he knew one of my cousins and he was telling me about this thing called the Kava Bowl um, where they would play, you know, the two teams played, but you didn't have enough equipment. And so people are, you know, trading helmets and things like that if they, they come into the game, you know, it wasn't something that was kitted out and, you know, having the kind of investment as we might think of today, um, but was really just about getting the kids playing and sharing a different game that people had a really personal attachment to. But at the same time, you do have the growth of the football market and transformations in media, you know, so thinking about how football becomes played, how we see it in our mind's eye, you know, if you've been a fan of the game for a while, you might think of, you know, soundtracks and slow motion playbacks and, you know, all of the kind of hype, um, the announcing, you know, all of the things that go into creating a certain feel for the game, a certain um, energy you know, that people connect to, you know, you have those developments happening at the same time, you know, it's, it surpasses baseball as America's game in terms of being the most watched, uh, most profitable. You have post-World War Samoan communities, which were largely seeded by U.S. military enlistment and the closure of the military base um, at the end of World War II. And um, that's the beginning where you have these large waves of Samoan migration to Hawaii and to the continental U.S. So where you see large Samoan, Samoan communities, um, it's usually connected uh, to a military base, or at least was initially, right? So we also have their sons coming of age, entering the game. And in the islands, it's catching the imagination of youth in part because it offers an alternative to rugby, um, but also the media landscape of American football stands out. And as players in the islands and stateside increasingly are able to access football scholarships through, through networks, through recruiting, and you really start to see this pick up in the 80s. And then certainly, you know, it just continues on this upward trajectory since then. As a sport, it, it starts to stand out for the opportunities that it offers. Um, and even still, I think it stands out compared to other sports. Um, and the opportunities, also, although some of those pipelines are starting to shift, right? So I think from the 1990s into the 2000s and later, the kind of media coverage of players like Junior Seau, you know, Troy Polamalu, they become a household name. Um, it's not really niche, right? It's they're nationwide. And then you have many others, you know, also strikes a chord at the same time that you have college coaches recruiting directly from the islands, you know, and sort of keeping in mind that our communities are connected across the Pacific and miles and miles of ocean, cousins, uncles, brothers, fathers, passing down their love for the game and, you know, the families being part of that as well. So as football is growing in Samoa, so is Samoan presence growing in American football over several decades. And you have media, money, meaning all coming together to produce what we see today. I, th I think the point about the connections and the networks and the families um, is really key. It's not just kind of this isolated thing of this one boy wants to play football and goes off. It, it, it is very much a networked, community-based story um, that you tell. And as you said, it's not just right now. It's not new. This is building on, really, at this point, multiple generations. Um, 
And so I was wondering if you can tell us about the kind of the quote, the Polynesian pipeline um, in this earlier iteration of this. Um, and you describe in the book, you, you sort of explain what this process looked like um, in many ways through the story of your father. Um, so I'm wondering if you can kind of help us understand um, what kind of that process looks like. How, how does one go from being um, a, a youth on the islands playing football to ending up in very far away man, mainland United States um, and becoming sort of a household name. What are kind of the stages of that process um, initially and to what extent kind of is that process the same more recently? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think, um, I'm not sure when they first used the term Polynesian pipeline. I think it has a longer genealogy from, you know, early 20th century barefoot leagues and and their kind of travels to the U.S. But where we really start to see this pipeline consolidating um, is really in the 1970s. And so I think um, my dad's story is really exemplary of this kind of movement. So he is part of that, you know, generation where the sons were growing up outside of the islands, even though they might have been born um, in the Samoan Islands. So, you know, some of the early pioneers um, were certainly born in the islands and then moved either through church networks or through the military networks. Um, So um, parents or um, aunties, uncles, might be resident in places like Hawaii. And at that point in time, there was pretty large contingent um, in Hawaii in the post-World War II era. So you have in the 70s, you know, this next generation entering the football pipelines. Um, And it's actually, you know, people use the Polynesian pipeline uh, to refer to this, right? As if it's, you know, one strand, but it's actually, when you look closely, um, it's actually several strands but the largest one comes through Hawaii at this point in time. Um, so the project in the project, I was interested in the one from Samoa to Hawaii, and then that continues on to the continental U.S., right? Because Hawaii in the past, um, I think to a lesser extent today, um, but certainly in the past was a crucial node in this pipeline. Um, so, you know, early pioneers like Mosi Tatupu or Junior IU um, come from Hawaii high schools, you know, become athletic standouts in Hawaii high schools. But as Samoan communities grew stateside, things began to look a little bit different. And so in the book, I suggest that the Polynesian pipeline, you know, is a less useful metaphor than it used to be and suggest thinking about a Polynesian network, right? Because if we think about how people move, if we actually map it, I'm sure there will still be large nodes today. I mean, I know that certainly, but the fact is people are going all over the country now and they have been for some time um, and you know it's always functioned somewhat as a network connecting players to programs often through um, personal relationships right between coaches or former players or um, maybe through church connections for example um, so if we're thinking yeah if we're thinking about Polynesian communities yeah the poly pipeline I think is a good shorthand but um, for a more kind of scholarly understanding of this kind of sport migration, Polynesian Network is definitely um, something that I've started using. But as I said, so the early generations, you have a large contingent coming out of places like Hawaii 
Um, but now we have large communities, you know, across California. They're in Oregon. They're in Washington. They're in Texas because of um, military, you know, stationing there. Uh, they're in Virginia and D.C. And so it's not um, maybe originally or ancestrally from the islands and certainly from Pacific Island communities, but you don't see as many of the players coming directly from the islands. Although I will qualify that right immediately by saying that um, by the late 80s and certainly into the 90s and it picks up also into 2000s, you have a lot more of the coaches um, not necessarily recruiting from Hawaii, but recruiting directly from American Samoa. So um, you also, so like I said, you have multiple strands, but you also have people, um, I'm thinking of like Isaac Sopwanga, for example, he comes out of my old high school, Samoa High School, and then he goes to community college and he's at a couple of community colleges before he goes to, you know, the larger four-year college. And then he goes on, he goes to UH and then uh, University of Hawaii, and then he um, enters the NFL draft. So there's several different kinds of um, journeys that people make, but they do end up all over the country. Mm. And and as we've already said, right, the idea of the networks and the community um, that are about relationships rather than necessarily fixed geographic points um, being sort of a main determiner and um, resource in a lot of ways for players and families to navigate what is a very complicated system. Um, yes, but- and, and I would just add to that that I think in the past um, the – you would have the networks and they might be the re- like really the primary way. That's how people got connected to potential scholarships or, you know, they knew a coach was looking for somebody. Um, and now I think you start to expand as the, the players go to these different camps um, and clinics and, you know, try to raise their visibility outside of the network, you know, that their coaches might have access to, but it is still certainly, you know, I think uh, network based and trust you know, about players and about coaches and and looking after um, the youth. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the ways that um, you show in the book that this idea of trust and networks and community are um, maintained and deepened is not just about people moving from the islands or Polynesian communities um, outwards, but also about people going back and about um, really deepening ties that are there or in some cases kind of someone who maybe wasn't born on the islands going to the islands later on um and you show that it's not just kind of a one-way thing of football you know you get you're really interested in football and so you go somewhere else and that's kind of the pipeline story um but actually that football has become integrated in some ways in Samoan traditions um has been integrated into uh communities and networks and really interesting ways. So I'm wondering now that we've kind of traced out the outward bit of the pipeline, if, if you can maybe tell us a bit about kind of how football's been integrated in existing communities and traditions and processes in the islands in particular. Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's definitely the expectation um, of uh, contributing in different ways. Um, so, you know, thinking about um, for example, players who um, donated, I mean, they might 
come for a visit and they'll bring boxes and boxes of cleats or, you know, players have organized to send weightlifting equipment. They've come and they've run, um, you know, big camps or big clinics. Um, there are many of them that I attended when I was doing this research. And so you have, you know, the, the kind of expectation and certainly the desire, you know, to, um, you know, that one's success is not just for themselves, but um, it kind of, it gets, some of it gets redistributed, you know, back home and maybe it's through the high school routes or maybe um, it's feeding the village, you know, maybe it's continuing to tithe to the church um, because even though if you're from the island, you know, meaning like you were born there, you kind of grew up there, even though you may be away, of course, you'll still have, you know, close connections there. And so part of maintaining those connections and honoring those connections is, you know, contributing in different ways, right? For even um, for others who have, you know, the ancestral connections and extended family there, but may not themselves have been raised in the islands. You know, there is also the sense that kids, you know, in the islands are disadvantaged in the athletic sportscape. Um, compared to, you know, who youth that might be growing up in Hawaii and certainly in places like California. And it's, I mean, it's true. That's just kind of, you know, objectively, that is the case. They don't have access to the same kind of coaching, to um, materials, to equipment, to, you know, events, etc. And so it becomes a way to then kind of um, contribute and uplift the youth. Um, but what's interesting about so for a long time, I think those two things were separate. So like the football, you know, there's a whole football scene and then there was stuff around, you know, Samoan culture and things that happened in the village. And um, they weren't, there wasn't um, the same kind of efforts at connection um, as you've seen come out um, in the last several decades. And so, you know, one of the examples, you know, that people can, uh, watch themselves um, in the Polynesian Power documentary um, is how is the reception, you know, by uh, His Highness Maliatoa uh, Tanamafili II, and he receives, you know, two of the sons of Samoa who are in the NFL at that point. And so it's a really interesting um, view of all of the protocol around him receiving them and them visiting him. Um, and, you know, them not being titled, they're not, they don't have chiefly titles, they don't have Matai titles. And so it's, it's interesting to see, you know, one, that this happened, you know, period. But again, the kind of prestige, um, the global reach of the NFL, you know, kind of elevates their status. And so it's not out of the question that he would, you know, receive them. Of course, they also have a more senior um, mentors who, who, one of which I think who does get a title while they're there, um, and is well known, right, in in Samoan communities. So it's interesting, you know. I think in the state side you see the incorporation of cultural elements in some contexts. So you know, hospitality, um, dances. So when I was at the Ainga Foundation's uh, Polynesian Bowl um, a while back, they all of uh, the guys that were playing, they learned a Fijian meke, you know, a dance that they then performed. Um, and every year they'd learn a different one. 
Um, and it's part of the performance at the banquet the night before where all the families are invited um, and they also perform it on game day. Right. So there's that there's, you know, imagery, there's music. Um, so there's a lot of recognizable cultural elements that get integrated in some context. And then, you know, like I said, in Samoa with the shared spaces, you get football incorporated um, into some Samoan context and some Samoan elements incorporated into um, you know, football events or um, hosting and things like that. So it's interesting to see a lot more than certainly um, maybe would have been the case in the past. And so I'm talking like, you know, 80s, 90s, um, that there's a bit of a shift that's happened. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hmm. That is really interesting. Um, thank you for explaining that to us and kind of the different ways that that's happening. It's not just sort of one instance, um, which makes it much more sort of integrated and, and interesting and richer in a lot of ways, um, certainly to study as an outsider. Um, but I wanted to pick up on this idea of kind of the cultural aspects, because you talk a lot in the book about how um, cultural assumptions, particularly around what does it mean to be a Polynesian um, footballer, the quote gridiron warrior, um, that there are a lot of external assumptions, really, that may or may not have anything to do with actual fact or um, island culture. Um, and that that's something, obviously, that players um, and Samoans who are not football related at all, but who happen to also be attending the same kinds of community colleges or universities where players are. Um, can you tell us about kind of how? these images, these assumptions, these um, cultural things are navigated when it obviously is important to bring your culture with you, but you're not coming into kind of a blank space where no one's ever heard of it. There are a lot of really incorrect assumptions that have been around for a while. So how do those stereotypes impact the players and the people around them and how do they navigate this? Yeah, that's a great question because, I mean, you're right, it's the players, but it's also the other students, right? And so, I mean, I could say from the 90s when I was doing my undergraduate um, study being asked whether we still lived in grass huts when people found out I was from Samoa. And I was like, first of all, they, we never lived in grass huts, you know what I mean? Like the level of like, so, but you know, that's not the same as what we see today with the prevalence of certain types of stereotypes. Um, and so you definitely have gendered racialization. You have ideas about race and indigeneity um, and then the kind of gender and hyper-masculinity coming together. We have the backdrop of colonialism and ideas about savagery, uncivilized peoples, you know, centuries of representation of the Pacific um, and Polynesians in particular. So like you said, then not coming into a blank slate. These are all shaped you know, by long histories, and it really depends on where you are. So when, you know, you enter these spaces in a place like California, 
it's a different experience than in a place like Hawaii or in a place like New York City or on the East Coast. And so that's a really interesting thing, you know, to see the variation in the kinds of knowledge people might have. Um, and I just, I remembered when I finished my doctorate and I was teaching a class on Long Island and, you know, this, this was a strand of the anthropology class that I was teaching. And I remember some of the students saying that they'd only ever seen someone's, you know, play football in the NFL on Sundays. Like that was the extent, right? So these stereotypes um, can be really powerful, particularly if they're the basis for the knowledge, you know, of interacting with somebody. And so I think, you know, there's a few things. There's, you know, the stereotypes around being a jock, but a particular kind of athlete, you know, physically dominant, fierce. Um, there's a sense of especially, and this is very gendered, right? So this is not at all the same way that people might comprehend um, someone, women, athletes, right? Female athletes coming through college. But for the young men, um, there's a sense of like always already being a football player or people just always assuming that the boys would play football or they have played football. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, it has definitely opened up athletic opportunities in contact sports. Um, and I remember from my research, you know, into Tuila, some of the coaches saying, that coaches coming from off island, they're never interested in looking at the skill positions. Like they're not interested in recruiting a Samoan quarterback from the islands. Um, they're interested in the linemen, right? The offensive, defensive line, um, or somebody who might have been playing a skill position gets moved to be a lineman, you know, once they go into college. Um, but sometimes, you know, I've also heard from the coaches there or other administrators there the people are not always as discriminating as they might expect. They just want a player from Samoa. So, you know, in a, in very real sense, it has opened up athletic opportunities. Um, it's also a powerful representation for young men. And not many, I know, would object to it. You know, I think my brothers, um, my cousins, the gridiron warrior. Yeah, that's awesome. You know what I mean? So there's, it's a powerful pull. Um but the issue uh, or one of the issues is that it short circuits others, right? It pushes um, players to be less invested in education, except to keep eligibility. Um, people advise them to the, the least on that end in some programs. Um, so, and also with the shift to the knowledge economy, deindustrialization, you don't want people systematically shut out of the opportunities because of preconceived racialized stereotypes that others might have, right? So you you have that trying to navigate the kinds of positive social currency that is produced by the gridiron warrior because it's in a sport that is highly valued in the American sportscape. You know, they're not doing curling. They're not, you know what I mean? Like they're not, yeah. the, the contact it's sports. It's profile, right? It's yeah, high profile. it's high profile, it's, it's valued, it's related. cool. Yeah. Right. All of that. And so you have that. But then you also have, you know, all of these kind of questionable interactions with students, with fans, with coaches, um, where, you know, people kind of go up against the kind of preconceived ideas that others have. Um, and 
that can be something that can be something that's difficult. I think, you know, especially young people to kind of weather over time, over time, over time. Um, I think the other thing it leaves out is a gender question, right? So where does the stereotype of the gridiron warrior leave anyone else? Girls being expected to marry or give birth to the next NFL player. Um, many examples of fewer resources and support for them because what they weren't doing wasn't as high profile or didn't have as clear connection to opportunity as the football, you know, potentials or just plain bias, less investment for girls and for boys. Um, and if we think about if the gridiron warrior provides a kind of idealized gender expression expected of all Pacific boys, where does that leave those who aren't cisgender or who are part of the rainbow community? Right. So, um, we also have uh, people like Sarah Tuaolo, who's former NFL player, has a powerful autobiography where he talks about the toll of shame and terror of being in the closet. And he only came out when he had retired from the NFL. Right. So the kind of expectations that get built up um, by others, but not just others, you know, also in our community, like I said, that stereotype, there's a powerful pull to it. Um, and so we might think about indigenous Pacific communities having an array of gender expressions, you know, including in Samoa and the, the synergy between colonial religious ideas that enforce a, a kind of gender binary and the current culture of hypermasculine football, you know, also articulating with that. And what it does is it squeezes out other expressions, but also with the, some of the aspects of the great iron warrior, I think that the racialized stereotypes also contribute to surveillance and differential treatment of our youth in the criminal justice system with serious outcomes. So it's, it's a very kind of complex, um, I think, uh, array of impacts probably for that stereotype and how it gets circulated. Well, and I think that it's, really important as well that the idea of the gridiron warrior for those people for whom it does work and it does fit and there is that pull it's still a very narrow stereotype um and so it might be about being powerful and masculine and cis and all of these other things um but as you mentioned it's about being um a warrior on the football field in particular roles um it may or may not translate for example to coaching technical things later on etc there's kind of expectations about warrior um and it's still linked in a lot of subliminal ways to the like bloodlust and kind of charging into the face of battle um not necessarily the kind of tactical commanding strategic thinking so even for the people for whom it does fit it still is constraining in ways um which i think was a really important uh discussion in your book of kind of going hang on a second there is this thing but let's not just kind of take that for granted. Let's like poke at it and figure out what's actually happening here. Um, but another aspect in that discussion is you paint, as you've just done for us very helpfully, the ways in which it creates constraints for different kinds of people. But you also um, make a point of highlighting the agency that players um, and other people have to kind of deal with, interpret, engage with these stereotypes rather than just simply being passive recipients of them. Um, so I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us a little bit about, um, I know you had some examples in the book of, especially on the player side, um, how might players have agency or deploy their agency um, when encountering these sort of stereotypes? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I think of um, Albert Went. I was trying to think of whether it's his piece Tatawing the Post-Colonial Body. There's one of his pieces, um, and he's a very well-known uh, Samoan writer, novelist. And I remember him talking about the Freeman Mead um, you know, controversy and saying there's Mead's version, there's Freeman's version, and then there's a Samoan version, right? Meaning that, you know, there's there's maybe ideas others have about us over which we have no control. And in many cases, we kind of care less, right? Like people just go on with their lives. And others, you know, those ideas like the Great Iron Warrior, um, maybe they might not be seen as negative or like I've mentioned before, they connect to ideas and values that we hold tight, like expectations to be strong, resilient, to endure, to carry on and do what's needed, right? For boys and men, certain ideas about shouldering responsibility, about strength, um, to stay or be strong, fatmalusi, right? Um, to not to be a coward, right? Something like laziness and cowardice, two of the worst things you can say about somebody because it questions their basic value. Um, so in, com- in some cases, knowing that that's part of the landscape, but not letting it define the players or our communities and taking control of some of those res- representations, especially in this age of social media. And so in the book, I think one of the examples I give, and this is not social media, but in you know mainstream media, uh, Troy Polamalu's his head and shoulders commercials, you know, being something like, it's really funny. Like he, he pokes fun at the obsession with his hair um, and kind of undermines, you know, what we might think of as this like staunch, you know, gridiron warrior type of figure. Um, and has, I mean, it's been really lucrative, <laughs> like those contracts, um, but they also kind of, you know, introduce other ways um, of being in the world that are not aligned with this kind of stereotype. So, of course, you do have some that take advantage of it. Um, but the point is, it doesn't mean the same thing for everyone, right? So what mainstream communities or non-Pacific Islander coaches and fans might see in the Great Iron Warrior is not necessarily what we see. And I think part of this is because over time, the Great Iron Warrior has been linked to our own histories and cultural ideas. And as I say in the book, it wasn't always, right? In our terms are kind of leg- legible in those ways. Um, I think earlier generations, I did get somebody say, you know, that they were beating the white man at their own game, right? They, they, it was recognized that they were playing a white man's game. But over time, people have been making other linkages um, and now they're with us. Um, for better or worse. But I think the interesting thing now, particularly in the age of social media, is you have different kinds um, of kind of self-fashioning in this very public space. And so, you know, in the book, I mentioned, you know, Troy Polamalu. Um, I talk a little bit about Marcus Mariota and his, some of his um, advertising contracts that don't reproduce you know, the view of the gridiron warrior, I mean, really at all. Um, and then some of uh, the coverage of Danny Shelton um, early on when he had just joined the Cleveland Browns, where he made, you know, someone, markers of someone culture, you know, very visible, very intentionally visible. Um, so it's interesting. There's quite an array of ways that a lot of the players are negotiating this landscape that's already kind of preform that they're stepping into. Mm. 
And and you put this um, in conversation with, uh, well, literally the title of your book, Gridiron Capital. Um, and so in conversations, not just around culture, but also obviously in terms of labor, in terms of economic opportunity. Um, so I'm wondering if we can kind of expand into that and have you explain for us, what do you mean by the term gridiron capital? And how does that relate to this idea of sort of players interacting in this system, not just as passive participants, but with agency? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can talk about the football industry in America without talking about capital or some version of it, right? So here I was interested in what the players and communities glean from football participation, right? And drawing on some of Pierre Bourdieu's work on capital to think through the possibilities, right? So of course there's economic, there's you know wealth, there's contracts, there's scholarships, and there's social, there's form of networks, right? Connections. There's cultural, symbolic, when we think about prestige, when we think about expertise, um, when we think about credentials, um, and then wanting to think a little bit more about athletic capital, right, which provides the possibility of conversion into these other forms, but it's not always about, or maybe simply about convertibility. And so, you know, trying to really think through that, right? So as I said before, not all sports are created equal. So, you know, gridiron capital inheres in the specific skill sets, the training, the cultivated bodily performance, specifically valued for on-field performance. And, you know, when I say not all sports are, are created equal, you know, again, you know, if we think about the position, the visibility, the value I mean, both in terms of like connection and meaning and popularity, but also like actual value, monetary value attached to football as a sport in the United States has gone global. Um, then, you know, you understand that the kind of capital that's afforded by playing football um, does have a unique aspect to it, right? And it also resides in the social currency we attach to the game, right? It's um, ascendant in the American sportscape. Uh, it's also adheres in the value that's created through branding and social media reach. And so, you know, trying to think about um, different aspects of value that come together in thinking about gridiron capital, um, accumulating it depends on protracted efforts at training training the body shape means one orientation to the game you know in the book i talk about almost kind of conquering your body and your senses right um conquering the fear that you might have with this fast-paced um high contact right good risk of injury um involved in the game but you're also transforming your body in anticipation of commodification Right, so in the commodification aspect, I'm talking about how players become um, commodities within the sports industry. You know, how they're valued, um, how their images are circulated, the literal, you know, draft stock, the amount of money, you know, how they are valued um, in terms of potential contracts and so on. And so um, what's interesting is, of course, this is not something that's undertaken, you know, under duress, people can always walk away. Um, and it's a process that's willingly undertaken, enthusiastically undertaken, 
you know, by a lot of the players that um, I spoke to over the years while doing this research um, and others that have been connected through my own family and personal networks, right? So when you have this investment by the players in, in their own bodies and their own performance to produce this kind of capital that can um, create mobility for them, you know, social mobility, geographic mobility, economic mobility. Um, it's a really interesting way of understanding some of the aspects of this participation. And I think part of what I'm doing in the book is not, you know, uh, kind of trying to produce this uh, economistic, um, you know, deterministic kind of narrative that it's all about the money and they're kind of following these these pathways. Um, but it is a negotiation of what the football industry has become and other aspects um, that people rely on, you know, that they reach for um, to, I don't know, affirm their value, I guess. So, you know, so there's certain experiences that they have um, on the field, going through the programs in relations with their coaches, but then there's a variety of other ways that they're valued in our families, in our communities, in our churches. Um, and so thinking about how they navigate, you know, that um, pathway of athletic labor um, and, but the, the framework of capital um, isn't all encompassing. Right, it's a really important part of understanding the story, I think, but it intersects with other elements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So, thank you for explaining that to us. Um, and because we're, we're, we're we've kind of talked a little bit about a little bit of the history of this, the kind of how we've gotten to where we are, um, a bit of sort of where we're at now, and to what extent it's changed over the years versus kind of continuing. Um, I'd love to sort of finish off the interview looking at two of in my definitely biased personal opinion, um, two of the areas that American football really needs to, I think, contend with going forward. Um, and one of them is quite depressing. And one of them is probably much less depressing and has a lot of sort of potential for interesting things. So we'll do the depressing one first so that we can end on a high note. <laughs> um, um, so obviously one of the things uh, that's now pretty well known is, um, and you obviously have already mentioned it a little bit, that American football has really high likelihood of injury um, and has high likelihood of really quite long-term impact from injury. It's not just something that happens necessarily in that moment that you then recover from 100% necessarily. Um, given how important... Uh, understanding injury is, understanding health is, that this isn't just a medical thing. This is also influenced by language. This is influenced by culture. This is influenced by all these other things. Um, how We've been talking throughout this about how important community is in understanding the American Samoan experience of football and engagement with football. Could you maybe walk us through sort of what the expectations are, what the conceptions are around sort of this problem really of football being an area of opportunity, but also with these incredibly high physical risks and long-term impacts? Yeah, it's a really sticky question. You know, it's it's the last, I, I addressed some of this in the last chapter of my book and it, it was the last piece that I wrote before the conclusion. Um, in part, you know, trying to get my head around both the research on concussion, and I learned a lot diving into that research. Um, 
but also I really wanted to think about how does that, you know, what what we might know in research doesn't always translate to um, behavioral changes or shifts in policy, things like that. Sometimes it, it's quite a long um, arc for that to happen, you know, and, and kind of understanding also what are the things that might um, support that more positive change and what are some of the things that inhibit that more positive change and I think one of the things that um, I tried to get my head around were was the articulation between um, in American football and the kind of love for the value of American football a good portion of it is anchored in risk in injury in sacrifice right and so that's not something, even though there have been lots of different, you know, policy changes, whether you're talking about NCAA or high school or the pros, there have been a number of changes that have been aimed at reducing um, certain kinds of risk, um, sometimes after big, you know, kind of public crises, right, like the concussion crisis that's been around and in discussion in the public for some time now. Even with that, um, People, people don't want to let that go. Um, fans don't want to let it go. A lot of the players, a lot of the coaches, you know, that's not um, the game as they love the game. Um, and even in our own communities. And so I said the articulation between those kinds of ideas in the sport and the kinds of things that we expect um, of our young people and of certainly of our young men, right? And so I mentioned earlier expectations across the board for strength, resilience, sacrifice, you know, contribution to the collective, even if, if it means you're making a personal sacrifice. Um, those are kind of uh, generalized um, parts of Samoan culture. And I think where it comes together with young men or kind of expectations around manhood is also strength, resilience, sacrifice, um, risk, um, the kind of, uh, certainly like not from within our communities, but you know, others expecting Polynesians, you know, not to get hurt, you know, that um, they just don't, they don't get hurt. They're, they're big, they're strong, you know, kind of, the bodies are uh, impermeable or unbreakable. Um, and so I think when you have a lot of those things coming together, um, it makes it difficult, certainly, to see major changes. And so, like, what I'm interested in here is how do we – I don't see football going anywhere anytime soon. Um, I don't see our families and our communities letting it go anytime soon. Like there's so many ways that it's um, rooted uh, in, in our families and in our communities. But what are the ways that we might be able to safeguard our young men? You know, and I think about this, I have a, I have a young son and you know, I've been asked, like, oh, when is he going to play football? Of course, now I'm here in New Zealand. Uh, when are you guys going to need an agent for him playing rugby? <laughs> like, he's five. Relax, people. Um, you know, but I do think about him. And, you know, already he is, like, rough and tumble. And I can imagine he would love to play a contact sport, you know, when he's old enough to something like rugby or something like football. Um and so, you know, these these questions are, like I said, intellectual, but they're also personal, thinking about 
the outcome of some of our um, older generations of former players um, and the toll that different kinds of injuries have taken on them. And so, you know, I'm just, I think it's a really sticky question because you have an articulation, not just from outside, but from inside um, around valued expressions of masculinity, um, particularly for young men, um, but also kind of uh, generally the expectation to kind of get on with it, you know, don't complain, keep going, do what you have to do. Um, And so I think the health question is, for me is thinking about what are some of the countervailing values that we might elevate over this kind of hyper-masculinity or forms of toxic masculinity um, coming from mainstream American culture? Are there other things around service, around contribution, around care um, that might have traction or get us thinking a little bit differently about the health of our young people and and the potential futures, um, thinking about the risks that they undertake uh, when they play. Mm. Mm. As you said, very sticky issue, um, but one that we therefore need to have conversations around. So um, I was really pleased to see it in the book and discussed with such nuance that this isn't a simple thing. It's not, okay, take that out. It doesn't matter what we replace it with. It's like, no, actually... There's a lot of pieces into this that need to be woven or unwoven very carefully. Um, And I think that that provides us, I mean, obviously, I think most people, none of our books (laughs) provide answers to complicated things necessarily, Um, but providing the beginnings of a conversation or or, or pieces or foundations of a conversation that can then be carried forward um, is really important. But I did promise that we would end on a more uplifting note in terms of the future of football um, and Samoan involvement. So I would love to ask you about this new thing that is coming or has begun in the NCAA of name image likeness laws, which allow for um, university athletes to be paid uh, for all sorts of things, but essentially name image likeness. So anytime their pictures use, their names use, etc., they can now get paid for that, um, which is a massive, massive deal because that used to be completely antithetical to playing sport at university in America. Um, So this seems to offer a lot of really promising possibilities. Could you maybe talk about what this could mean for Samoan athletes? Yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting development because it's been a, you know, pretty well-known tussle between the kind of NCAA principles of amateur um, competition, right, and enforcing a lot of those rules. And then, um, I mean, in response to a number of, you know, lawsuits that have unfolded over time, where, you know, we look at the, the value that is being generated by these players, um, and the fraction of which uh, is actually being returned to them. And so you have all of this, you know, not only like the time, the energy, um, the profits that they're generating for others, uh, the risk that they're taking on um, without uh, without return for some time, you know, in, in, in any comparable way to what they're generating. And so, you know, thinking about like the O'Bannon lawsuits uh, for basketball, um, the kind of uh, 
the attempt at um, the labor organizing at Northwestern. I mean, you know, this this challenge has been coming in different ways for some time. So when I was doing the final copy edits for the book, I had to go back and and do a a footnote kind of caveat because it was just a couple months before that the the NCAA, the NCAA had changed their policy and introduced was very kind of open, you know, you, you can do this, but it has to be, um, it has to align with, you know, the laws of your state, it has to be reported properly, so on and so forth, which essentially opened up the floodgates, you know, so like I said, it's been, it's been building for some time. Um, and I think there's some interesting possibilities with that. So on the one hand, you know, one of the most interesting possibility is that people can, um, ref- they can receive some of the, the fruits of their labor um, more immediately. They don't have to wait for years and years and years until they get that pro contract um, and kind of uh, toil. You know, I think of my brother who was a redshirt freshman at, at San Diego State. And I remember he didn't even have enough money, you know, to be able to buy me like a, a college sweatshirt. Like he was a broke student athlete. <laughs> at SGSU um, when he was there. And, you know, I think a lot of uh, student athletes um, experience that. You can't work. You have so many hours. Your your day is highly structured. You know, you have the full class load on top of all of this physical work that you're doing. Um, and so, you know, to me, it's interesting because it offers the possibility of having a return on that investment much sooner and um, maybe without having to experience some of the accumulative risks, you know, that we were talking about or some of the outcomes um, before you can actually get paid. On the other hand, you know, the fact that it's not well-regulated, you know, even child athletic labor is not well-regulated to begin with. And so thinking about, you know, what are all the possibilities for predatory agents, um, you know, like all the different ways if you think of child actors and all the, some of the crazy stories that you hear from people um, once they've left the industry, you know, you wonder how are we going to safeguard um, the interest and the experience of our youth as they're going through these athletic pathways? Because that question isn't answered with the new um, policies on the name image likeness. If anything, I feel like it's it opens them up um, quite a bit more. So, you know, I think you have some interesting opportunities, um, but there's also enhanced risk. Um, and so I think, you know, then the question maybe becomes how, how do we arm parents, right, to better um, navigate these new pathways, um, or is there other legislation um, that will eventually come to pass um, that will guide or provide a bit more guidance um, on these issues? But it's really interesting, you know, to see the way that it's unfolding now, um, and to see uh, even just some recent shifts, right? So uh, some of the more team-based approaches versus kind of star players approaches, you know, so where, and what will that do, you know, to benefit the individual players, but also maybe to benefit the collective um, versus introducing more inequality on any given team. Yeah, there's a lot of money, (laughs) a lot of money happening here.
a lot of money, a um, lot of otherwise unregulated things, right? We're combining unregulated or less regulated labor with relatively lax regulation on social media with what does it mean to make money in these ways? Um, so definitely a lot of unknowns still. Um, but I guess that makes it interesting to continue watching. As we come then to the end of the interview, um, obviously, we've been mainly talking about your book, which is great, but it is also published. It is now out and available, which must mean, are you working on something now or next that you can give us a teaser of? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm writing a few different pieces. So there's um, one that I'm working with some amazing emerging researchers, a uh, short piece on activism in Pacific sport. There's another chapter I have on kind of thinking against globalization as a frame um, for understanding uh, movement and sport migration. Tell us about your longer term projects. Oh, so I have um, these two kind of longer term projects that are going to take uh, probably in the next couple of years. They're around culture, communities, and transnational movement. So the first one is um, scoping a project on the global movement of Hakka. Um, so looking at Hakka as it travels outside of Aotearoa, New Zealand, and outside of context controlled by Maori, how it's traveled both by sports circuits and outside of sports circuits, and um, thinking about how do people understand it, how do they use it, how do they perform it, um, what are some of the conversations around cultural protocols, for example. And right now I'm looking at social media and what conversations on Twitter tell us about this. Um, but I've also been developing um, some case studies. And that one, interestingly, actually grows out of the football research uh, where people would ask me about the use of Hakka in American football programs. And then the second one, um, I'm working on a piece about native mascots in multi-ethnic and indigenous communities. Um, and with that one, working toward an understanding of whether and how that complicates our understanding or our critiques of native mascots. And so um, in the continental U.S., there's you know particular histories and critiques and um, research that comes out. Uh, looking at the place, the function, the use of native mascots. And so I'm looking at a different place that's multi-ethnic um, with a good like portion of indigenous um, people in the community. And so, yeah, trying to understand how that changes or whether it changes the conversation and, and what does it look like uh, in terms of how people see the meaning and the history of native mascots there. Okay, well, those are both fascinating topics. So that sounds great. Uh, please investigate them. Please write them into books. And please come back and share your insights with us. Um, I think there are a lot of people who will be interested in both of those conversations, um, individually and together. So that sounds absolutely fascinating. That would be really great at, at some point. They're super interesting and I'm learning a lot um, just getting into them at the beginning. So I look forward to seeing how it's all going to unfold. Yeah, I do too. Um, well, while you are off doing that, listeners can read the book that we've been primarily discussing, which as a reminder is titled Gridiron Capital, How American Football Became a Samoan Game, um, out from Duke University Press in 2022. Dr. Lisa Uparesa, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a really nice conversation.